Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. I am here to do two things. Chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And ass kickings. So, instead, my two things will be telling you about Pierre-Yves Martel's new album and talking about the music of the spheres, if those are even two different things. Pierre-Yves Martel's music is the soundtrack of Weird Studies, And if you have listened to the show for any length of time, you know how versatile he is. Any given week, you might hear modal jazz, modular synth, pedal lap steel, Boards of Canada-style electronica, Twin Peaks-style noir soundscape, or something entirely different. One of Pierre-Yves' many instruments is the viol de gamba, a bowed string instrument that sounds like the cello's wild country cousin. The music you'll hear on today's episode includes two tracks from Pierre-Yves' upcoming album, Mer Bleu, a collection of solo gamba improvisations. I encourage you to support this project by pre-ordering the album on Pierre-Yves' Bandcamp page. When you pre-order, you'll get to download four tracks immediately and will receive the complete album when it is officially released on May 1st. There will be a link in the show notes, and you can also just Google Pierre-Yves Martel Bandcamp. Okay, now for the music of the spheres. I'm about to hit you with something that will probably seem a little dry, abstruse, perhaps irrelevant. I assure you, it is not. Do me a favor, and be patient with me. I promise this will all become very relevant. This week we're talking about the film Last and First Men, in which the late composer Johann Johansson combined his final musical work with images of brutalist architecture and spoken excerpts from Olaf Stapledon's 1930 novel of the same name. J.F. and I do an okay job breaking this all down at the beginning of the episode, so stand by for further and better particulars. In this introduction, I want to say something about the prelude of Johansson's musical score, which is the first thing you hear in the film. At the very beginning, we hear two parts. Men singing two Gs at the interval of an octave. It goes like this. And in counterpoint, women singing a two-note figure, a C going to a D, like this. The women's C, sung against the men's G, makes the barest harmony, a single interval of a fourth. The women's D, sung against the men's octave G, makes another interval, a fifth. Now let's hear it all put together.
That opening figure is repeated, but this time there is a glissando in the bass to a G an octave lower yet. With this new element, it is as if a two-dimensional object has rotated and shown a third dimension. As we hear this music, we feel a gathering of primordial elements, chord and line, men and women, voices and instruments, and above all those three intervals, the octave, the fourth, and the fifth. It so happens that those intervals, the octave, the fourth, and the fifth, were the ones that Pythagoras discovered in the tale of his visit to a blacksmith's shop. According to the story, Pythagoras realized that the harmonious sounds made by ringing hammers obeyed arithmetic ratios. Two hammers, one twice the size of the other, will ring the interval of an octave. A six-pound hammer and a nine-pound hammer will ring a fifth. And a six-pound hammer and an eight-pound hammer will ring a fourth. Actually, this wouldn't work with hammers. To that extent, the story is apocryphal. But it does work with a vibrating string. An octave is made by dividing a string in two, making the ratio of two to one. A fifth is made by a three to two ratio, the fourth by a four to three ratio. Sorry to spring both math and music theory on you so early in the day, but Pythagoras's discovery could not be more important to the story we are going to tell in this episode for it revealed that music is made not only of notes, but numbers, and that those numbers govern also the course of the planets and stars, the proportions of our bodies, the forms of our handiworks, indeed, every significant form. The higher music that these numbers make is what philosophers of old called the music of the spheres. The ancients honored Pythagoras for having been the first to grasp some part of a great pattern, a great whole of which actual sounding music is only a part. And even more, they pondered the profound metaphysical implication of this discovery, that this pattern, this whole, is not something separate from ourselves. It is what we are. It is both our origin and our destiny. We are the music of the spheres, though, like the eye that cannot see itself, we cannot hear this music that we are. Recall what I said earlier. Listening to the prelude to Last and First Men, built out of the stark granitic forms of the three perfect Pythagorean intervals, is like listening to some gathering of primeval elements. If we could hear the music of the spheres, maybe it would sound something like this. Imagine that it does. In what follows, J.F. and I end up talking about the place of the human in this music of the spheres and in the context of a dire philosophical question that hangs over everything we do, every day, nowadays. What if this is it? What if this is the historical moment when the human species disappears forever? I mean, logically speaking, it has to happen sometime. But what if it's now? I think about that all the time. Like, all the time. And I know I'm not the only one. Johansson's Last and First Men is a film of our age, for it challenges us to contemplate humanity against a backdrop of ultimate non-being. What kind of figure do we cut against such a backdrop? What is it to be human? What justifies our doings when it all goes away? 
In this conversation, J.F. and I ask you to contemplate the possibility that such a pattern as I have described might in some way exist, that it might have something to do with these existential questions of fate and final purpose, and that all this might have something to do with you. On that score, I will let Sun Ra have the last word. Why doesn't the earth fall? How can you walk upon it? It's the music. It's the music of the earth, the music of the sun and the stars, the music of yourself vibrating. Yes, you music too. You're all instruments. Everyone's supposed to be playing their part in this vast orchestra of the cosmos. Let's begin by describing the artwork we're discussing, as opposed to yes. get, getting into some minutiae right from the beginning. Um, right. So we're discussing a film called Last and First Men by... Um, <laughs> Johan Johansson, right? <laughs> Johan Johansson, that... yes. I always go like Magnus Magnusson. I always get it wrong. <laughs> uh, just, I don't know, just because there's a number of complicated diacritics in this guy's name. No, yeah. not that complicated, but still Icelandic. Yes. And uh, who knows how Icelandic people pronounce words? Icelandic people do, I suppose. They know how they pronounce words. Exactly. But I don't, is what I'm saying. I suspect the Danes have a, an inkling about how Icelandic people pronounce words, too. I'm sure the Scandinavians all have much better ideas. <laughs> exactly about Icelandic pronunciation than I do. I'm just going to call him Johansson. Yeah, Johan Johansson. Johansson. Right. And he is well known as a film composer who uh, tragically passed away recently. He's the master of ambiance. He's the most cinematic of film composers. His music layers an extra visual dimension on the films that he works on. I'm a big, big fan of Johansson's work as a composer. This was his first film. And sadly, last film. because he And died sadly, last shortly, film. Shortly afterwards. Exactly. In fact, I think... Okay, so the film had its premiere in February 2020. God, just before the curtain descended, right? Just before COVID yeah. kicked off. And he died in February of 2018, so just two years before. And my understanding is that the score, at any rate, was finished by a friend of his named Yair Elazar Glotman. Okay. And the soundtrack is released on Deutsch Grammophon, which is sort of the gold standard of classical recording. So it's interesting. That it, is, that, it is a wonderful score. It's got a real ECM vibe. I don't know if you listen to a lot of ECM yeah, music. Yeah, I'm a fan of ECM, as is Pierre-Yves, my brother. In fact, I think he yeah. tagged them recently in a tweet hoping that they wouldn't notice his new project. I've often thought that Pierre-Yves would be a natural ECM artist. Pierre-Yves Martel belongs on ECM like jam belongs on toast. I agree. ECM, do you hear me? <laughs> um, and I'm not saying that because he's my brother. In fact, it hurts me to say this, <laughs> which is how you know it's true. 
Um, <laughs> and Pierre-Yves, yeah, I don't, I don't understand why he's releasing his own stuff right now. It makes no sense. Publishers should be engaging in mortal combat with one another for the privilege of releasing tracks that Pierre-Yves Martel has composed. But anyways, that's my opinion. I'm not a gatekeeper. You are a simple man. A simple man with a simple opinion. A simple man. I know little of the recording industry, but I do know that... No, anyway. Do you remember Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer from... It was like one of the very few funny inventions of Saturday Night Live. I often think of Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer. <laughs> I have vague memories of that. Sometimes when I get a message on my fax machine, I wonder, did little demons get inside and type it? I don't know. My primitive mind can't grasp these concepts. But there is one thing I do know. When a man, like my client, slips and falls on a sidewalk in front of a public library, then he is entitled I feel like to no less the than... The unfrozen caveman lawyer should be the name of one of, you know, those like named fallacies? You know how like 19th century positivists just loved to take any form of thought that was like threatening to positivism and then called a fallacy? Yeah. Like the intentional fallacy or the pathetic fallacy. Yeah, there were so many fallacies. So the unfrozen caveman lawyer fallacy. I love that. How would you define it? You're a simple, humble creature. You don't know much <laughs> about the complicated modern world. And, but... Uh, but if I do know one thing... The wisdom of my ancestors teaches me. Yeah. And then you will just sort of say whatever it was you were originally going to say. So humility becomes your mask, your sophistic mask. Humility with an overtone of neo-primitivism. Right. Right. <laughs> That's a very specific fallacy, but it's very hard to detect. That's why it's so sneaky. And yet, in a tribalistic world, it becomes very appealing as a rhetorical stance. Yes. And this, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you've noticed this, is a tribalistic world that we find ourselves in. Certainly seems to be going that, and, that way. Yeah. And in fact, actually, to bring it back to the film, so really brief description of what the film is. It's the soundtrack that we've been talking about. The film composer, Johansson, also created a visual complement to the soundtrack, or a kind of, uh, I almost think of it as like counterpoint, like Bachian counterpoint, where you have these two lines running mm. parallel to one another, and they engage with one another. They make a harmony together, but they each also maintain their own inner life, their own consistency. Yeah. And the visual dimension of this, the counterpoint to the music, is a series of very long, slow tracking shots. I hope I'm using that term correctly. Yeah. Of socialist, brutalist monuments in what used to be called Yugoslavia, what are called spomenics. And I was trying to explain to Helen this morning what spomenics were. And among other things, spomenics are relics of an age that tried very consciously to overcome a tribalism that had almost destroyed that world. And those spomenics are now themselves being destroyed, vandalized, forgotten about, left to decay through precisely the same forces of tribalism that they were erected to fend off. And so they are 
sort of sad, failed magical talismans. That's something that I want to talk about as we go along. But tribalism and the tragic return of tribalism, it is a subtext mm -hmm. of part of this film. Oh, I agree. Yeah. In any event, I don't want to dig too deep into that. And we may not return to that. But You've touched on one of the, the qualities of brutalism writ large that I've commented on before. And, and I think it was on a Patreon extra, but the brutalist's building that is consummated in its ruin, right? Yes, yes. Once you see the, the brutalist structure, because of the nature of concrete, concrete takes on the tracing of time very clearly. You can see water Indeed. erosion on concrete. You can see the cracks appear. It mm -hmm. is, it's a somewhat brittle uh, material, yeah. although there were varying you know, levels of quality with concrete. Fluid Actually, yet brittle. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I know. Exactly. Like modernity itself. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, to, well, that's the point. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think Johansson really captures that. These brutalist monuments that stand as monuments to a utopianism, a vision of what humanity could be, but captures them in their failed state. You know, once that utopianism has essentially disintegrated mm -hmm. and things have more or less reverted to the way they were before. And it's not just the monuments, the concrete that we're seeing become derelict and kind of like haunt these desolate landscapes. But it's also the vision that animated these monuments that we're seeing somewhat abandoned. Exactly. It, to me, it feels like just, you know, just like Heraclitus's work is completed by the fact that we only have fragments of it. And Heraclitus <laughs> yeah. achieves his fullness in his fragmentary nature. So I would argue brutalism achieves its purpose as an artistic movement when we see it begin to fall apart. And I think that that speaks to the deep irony in this film. I think, I think it's a deeply ironic film, but not ironic in a lame-ass adult swim way, <laughs> <laughs> but ironic in a tragic sense, like a kind of tragic yes. irony in the film. Yes. Um, which we surely will discuss, yeah. Because I just thought of one way of expressing the irony. Mm -hmm. In both socialism of uh, like Tito's socialism. Yeah. Uh, Marshal Tito, the leader of post-war Yugoslavia. And also in the high modernism of the post-war era, of which the brutalist Spomenics are a distinguished example. Yes. We were just talking about teleological notions of time when we were talking about sosopomy in the last episode. There is a very strong telos mm -hmm. in that modernist idea, a somewhat utopian orientation to the future. Now, what's interesting is that buildings, of course, manifest that. And they are teleological in truth, but in a very ironic way that their ruins are the future that they were always pointed towards. Yes. They were always future directed, but their future was ruined. Yeah, exactly. And that is reflected in the narrative, which we haven't discussed yet. The, That's the third line of our free voice counterpoint. Right. The whole film, just so you understand, uh, listener, the whole film consists of these long shots, still life shots of these monuments. There are no human figures in this film. There are no characters. There's no dialogue. It's simply these long tracking shots uh, in black and white of these brutalist monuments standing on desolate landscapes. And then we have the music 
And then we have a wonderful voiceover read by Tilda Swinton. And the text comes from a kind of golden era science fiction novel, which I think, Phil, you read, or at least partially read. I did read. This is a gem. Well worth getting out of the auxiliary library facility at your local (laughs) university. Nobody reads this shit anymore, but it's such a good novel. It's got its limitations. It was written in like 1930, so what do you want? But still, this is a surprisingly great science fiction novel. Last and First Men by Olaf Stapleton, despite the somewhat Scandinavian-sounding first name, was a Brit who wrote a number of science fiction novels and very much in a philosophic vein. He was a philosopher who felt that he could do philosophy in the medium of science fiction. He was right. No, it's so obvious now. Kant put an embargo yeah. on metaphysics, right? On, yes. on speculative metaphysics. So what happened was that all the speculation happened through art. Yep. The, the kind of zenith of all that was the pulp fiction of the first half of the 20th century. It's pure speculative metaphysics. But anyways, that's a parenthesis that I am now closing. So you like the novel. Yeah. The framing conceit, which you read in the very opening page... It begins with an introduction, it reads. This book has two authors, one contemporary with its readers, the other an inhabitant of an age which they would call the distant future. The brain that conceives and writes these sentences lives in the time of Einstein. Yet I, the true inspirer of this book, I, who have begotten it upon that brain, I, who influence that primitive being's conception, inhabit an age which, for Einstein, lives in the very remote future. The actual writer thinks he is merely contriving a work of fiction. Though he seeks to tell a plausible story, he neither believes it himself nor expects others to believe it. Yet the story is true. A being whom you would call a future man has seized the docile but scarcely adequate brain of your contemporary and is trying to direct its familiar processes for an alien purpose. Thus a future epoch makes contact with your age. Listen patiently. For we who are the last men earnestly desire to communicate with you, who are the members of the first human species. We can help you, and we need your help. Last couple of sentences that I just read are the first sentences you hear in the film. The text of what Tilda Swinton reads probably amounts to no more than 2,000 words. She reads in a stately way, and the film is very musical in the sense that her words not only are articulated musically, and oh my God, I could listen to her read or say anything. Listening to her beautiful voice. Mm. It's a little off topic, but oh my God, what a beautiful voice. Her lines are actually put in with the music so carefully and deliberately. It's almost its own kind of musical composition. But the point is that this is not a way of composing a film that is really oriented to a lot of exposition. There's only a in like a handful of sentences from this novel that have been excised to create the screenplay of this film. And I think there have also been some changes introduced, some things that Stapleton didn't write. But the basic outline is preserved, and I've just given it to you. Yeah. The idea is that a being from two billion years in the future, this belongs to the 18th species of humanity. It's, it's so, so I, I just need to point out, because someone will if I don't, that the conceit of this novel is basically an inversion of the unfrozen caveman 
fallacy. <laughs> it's yeah. the, like, I don't know, downloaded future man lawyer fallacy. So the idea is that we're hearing a message from the distant future. And I, I find it almost comical how distant the future is. It could have been 10,000 years in the future. You wouldn't have had to change a thing in what you're describing, I find anyways. But no, it's hundreds of million years, billions of years. So it has the kind of like hardcore optimism as to the potential of human ingenuity and progress. Because in this narrative, humanity will live on for hundreds of millions of years. Nay, billions of years. Two billion years. Right. It's thousands of millions. <laughs> many, many millions. And so we're getting a, a very strange message in this film from the future. You know, you can't really just boil it down to some kind of moral. Mm -mm. Although I think there is a kind of moral quality to what's being said. Essentially, we're getting a message from our very last descendants, the last of the humans, the ones who will have to come to terms with the fact that humanity must at some point become extinguished. Right. And so the film, in a sense, is a contemplation of extinction, mm -hmm. but pushed into this kind of like cosmic, kind of dramatic pitch. And it, it's much more than that. It's a lot more than that. It reminds me of stuff that was written in the 17th century, people like Thomas Brown. It has a kind of um, calm, collected, even strangely, paradoxically hopeful despair in it. Yes. Which I found very, very compelling. And that's reflected in the imagery, to go back to the visual component. The film is shot in black and white. It looks old. It looks, I think, I mean, it's hard to judge with the video rendering, but I think it was shot on 16 millimeter black and white film. I think that's I, right. Yeah. Yeah. And it looks like something that was filmed at the time when 
you know, these monuments were being built or even before that, you know, it feels archival to a certain extent. It's, it's too stylistic to feel archival, but the image quality is something you'd expect from a kind of archival film, especially since it's still life imagery, which is usually something you see in archival film. And so it has a kind of tragic, everything has passed already resignation about it. Mm -hmm. A melancholy quality that I found very, very compelling, which is not something you usually find in that type of hard sci-fi from that era. It shares the optimism of classic science fiction in postulating a far future humanity, but the mood of it is something you are more likely to find in certain forms of fantasy where the golden age is behind us and now we watch the slow disintegration of the magic world. Something almost Tolkien-esque about that, about it. Absolutely. The elves leaving for the Western lands and all that. That's exactly right. I hadn't thought of that. That's so true. It's beautiful and it's elegiac is one word. Elegiac. That's the word I was trying to grope for. Because, okay, so this is clearer in the novel. I'm going to try and keep the novel and the film separate because they are quite different. Almost all of the film is really just from the last chapter of this novel. You know, something that's clear from the novel is that human history is an endless series of cataclysms, of groping towards something great and then just fucking it all up. And so it's funny to hear you talk about this as essentially positive because it assumes that human beings would still be around two billion years hence. And, uh, you know, I'm just like everybody else. I read this and I'm like, well, now we know we're going to be dead in 10 years yeah. uh, or something. Right. And I want to return to that. Okay. Because I think this film is important partly because it is a poetic evocation of that elegiac mood of like, well, what if this really is the end for our species? Mm-hmm. What if we sit down on that a little harder than just the lame, shallow, superficial doom scrolling version of that that we play with in our day-to-day lives really contemplating finitude finitude not only of ourselves but of the human species because it's it's going to happen sometimes so like if nothing else the novel asks you to imagine that it just happens two billion years from now and in the novel one of the reflections of this narrator is just sort of like well we've had a really long run But if you take a step out of the story that I just told you, the full story of the universe is infinitely longer and it will go on long, long. And like, what if we had escaped the disaster that is now coming for us? Because that's the thing that happens. This 18th species of human beings have erected civilization to a point beyond that we can even understand it. We are like ants next yeah. to a superhighway trying to understand their world, right? Yeah, and, and Johansson makes a great job of conveying that using the monuments. Uh, we'll, we'll yes, get, we'll exactly. Get to that. You get the yeah. sense that you're, she's doing our, her best to describe their civilization, but you know that what she's describing is beyond our comprehension. Yeah. yeah, we could be looking right at it and not even understand it as the fruits of a civilization, right? Yeah, exactly. Yet for all that, for all the high civilization of the 18th men, they're going to die because there's some astronomical anomaly and the sun's going to explode and cook them and they can't possibly get away far enough yeah. uh, to escape. So that's the end of it, yeah. yeah. And so that's it, the end. And in the novel, it's just sort of like, well... 
What if we'd lived another two billion years? We'd still die exactly. as a species at some point. And so, you know, this is sort of asking us like, okay, so whether we are going to die from one of the many possible apocalypses that we daily rehearse in social media could be environmental collapse, could be plague, could be war, could be any number of things, right? Yeah. What if I told you, no, none of that shit's going to happen. We're good. <laughs> You've got another 2,000 years. Well, all I've done is change the scale, right? There's a joke in a Woody Allen movie, can't remember which one, where he thinks he's going to die, and he thinks he's got cancer, and he goes in, and he realizes he's not sick, and he leaves the hospital. I think it's a Woody Allen movie. I'm not sure. He's skipping. He's like really happy. And then he stops because he suddenly realizes, oh, wait, but I'm still going to die. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Am I going to die, Doc? The answer is always, yeah, yeah, you yeah, are. Yes. Yeah, you are. Just not, um, maybe not now. <laughs> and this is something very hard for us to understand. Time ultimately is very hard for us to understand. Just to, though, to pivot back to what you were saying, that elegiac quality, the elves going off into the West. Ultimately, it doesn't matter how prepared you are. It doesn't matter how high your civilization, doesn't matter where you're at when the reaper comes for you or for, you know, your entire species. You're going to have certain kind of feelings about it. You're going to have mm -hmm. to find a way to get right with that. And that is what this film is about. That's what the novel is about. And, and that sense of an elegiac quality that it's not the fucking zombie apocalypse and what's now the cliche idea of apocalypse, total civilizational collapse. And we get to watch human beings reduced to the level of uh, bare human life. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's the inversion of that, but death is still death. Yes, it's not. I mean, I'm watching The Last of Us now. I've watched a few episodes in the HBO series. And it's quite good, I think. But again, it's this kind of um, very American, I think, or North American survivor instinct thing where essentially what these characters are holding on to for dear life is time itself, which the nature of life is such that that's the thing you can't hold on to. If you're going to die well, let's say, if you're going to die with a modicum of peace, it's precisely because you've transcended this grasping at time. And it seems to me that a lot of the transhumanism that we, you know, encounter these days in the in the neosphere is precisely about living as long as possible, even if it means translating ourselves into pure data or uploading our brains into robots. And this is something that um Ray Brassier, who is a philosopher that I quite like in his book, Nihil Unbound, Enlightenment and Extinction, writes about, he's commenting here in the passage I'm thinking of, he's commenting on uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard's idea of solar catastrophe, which is basically the fact is that when the sun goes out, it doesn't matter how advanced we've become, that'll be the end, unless we've managed to populate or colonize entire star systems. But then in 4.5 billion years or whatever, then even that's over, right? At some point, the heat death will make sure that no technology can keep yeah. postponing the inevitable moment that is actually integral to now, to this moment, which is Woody Allen's realization that no matter how, where death ends up on the chronos axis that extends before you, in its being present there before you in the future... It is always with you now. It is simply just a fact of existence now. And so when you're saying sitting with that idea, 
of not just death, but extinction, like species extinction. Lyotard has this nice little passage here that uh, Brassier quotes in his book. With the disappearance of Earth, thought will have stopped, leaving that disappearance absolutely unthought of. It's the horizon itself that will be abolished. And with its disappearance, the phenomenologist's transcendence in imminence as well. If, as a limit, death really is what escapes and is deferred, and as a result, what thought has to deal with, right from the beginning, this death is still only the life of our minds. But the death of the sun is a death of mind, because it is the death of death as the life of mind. Mm. Everything is already dead. In the logic of the thought of extinction, death itself will die with our extinction, because the moment of our extinction will not be thought. I'm not saying I agree with this. I'm just trying to articulate the the vision. But I think it is something we need to be able to sit in, this idea of non-existence, of non-being, the non-being that preceded us, the non-being that will succeed us. And there's a moment in the film where the narrator reflects on this, on the fact that this is an absolute end. And in a way, it gives the lie to the whole process by which we were striving to survive so much. In a way, it relativizes that process, or at least it makes it such that once the moment has come and extinction has happened, it'll be as though that process never took place. Once humanity disappears, since humanity is the source of the thought of humanity, humanity will be unthought, and in a sense, humanity will never have been thought. It will simply have vanished from time. Like a dream. Like a dream. Like a dream. Exactly. And it's that thought, that meditation that the film is trying to instill in us as we watch it. I think with for the best of reasons, because as you say, the way we narrativize extinction as this emergency, this thing, like climate change, we have to stop climate change. And I'm, I'm not disagreeing with any of those projects of trying to yeah. ensure, but I'm but saying that's like that, the solutionism version yeah. of this existential fear. It's just like, we're going to come up with a technical solution for it. Right. But yeah. that's not really answer. And I am all for technical solutions to global warming. Don't get me wrong, but that's not the right kind of answer to the kind of question we're asking. Yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, a different order of answer. Put it that way. The solutionism is fully ensconced in the imminent frame. And whether or not you believe in a transcendent object in God or whatever, extinction becomes, for the modern secular human being, a form of the transcendent. Mm. It is the nothing that conditions all of our somethings. It essentially becomes our God. And this is some, this goes way back to our first episode, Garmin Bosia, which is all about, you know, what you were calling the fear, which emerges as an entity in the human collective imagination after World War II with Hiroshima and its implications. It's so beautifully explored in the works of David Lynch, especially Twin Peaks. The point is that this fear or the object of that fear, and it's a shifting object, you know, nuclear holocaust, climate change, um, polar shift or whatever, the fear becomes for us God. It becomes the transcendent horizon. Yes. And it's a hard horizon to live with. (laughs) It is. It does seem to me that this film is timely 
It seems somehow appropriate. It's a posthumous film that Johansson died before he was able to finish putting it together mm. and that other hands had to do that. Mm -hmm. It feels timely because the amount of existential dread that we just live in as a banal everyday matter became very clear to me as I was reading Last and First Men, the novel. The Stephen novel, yeah. Novel. Because the whole time I'm thinking, my brain is constantly kind of putting in little know-it-all asides, like, well, of course, as we all know now, we're all going to die in like much shorter frame of time, blah, blah, blah. And then I would catch myself thinking that and be like, well, how the fuck do I know? How does any of us know what's well, going to happen? Yeah. And yet a defeated mood of apocalypse is now a default for our culture. And that can't be good. That can't be good, right? Uh, I agree. Yeah. And I feel like this is the payment due, that brave and heroic idea of the modern that is expressed in those spomenics, those brutalist modern edifices that Marshall Tito had erected by the thousands across Yugoslavia after World War II. This brave mood where the human spirit alone could transcend, that we are in a modern world without transcendence, indeed in which the possibility or the very idea of transcendence is a poisonous, dangerous lie. Yeah. That after the death of God, Anthropos has assumed God's throne. Mm -hmm. And the belief in the human, that belief in the doings of human beings in the making of art, for example, in scientific progress, in humanitarian works, in the abolition of war, something that was much talked of, of course, in the years after World War II, we can look at those utopian hopes and thoughts now perhaps with a contemptuous smile or a, a, a smile of pity. But I don't think that quite does. I think that there was something brave and hopeful and beautiful about it. But the fact is that as a worldview, it is completely insufficient. Yeah, I agree. And what it left us with is just sort of like, well, what happens to you when you die? Well, you know, the whole edifice of that modern ethos that I just was describing is built upon science and uh, a naturalism, a scientific naturalism that would tell us that when you die, we put you in a hole in the ground and you rot. Mm -hmm. That's what happens when you die. But the consolation is you won't be around to experience that. Yeah. You won't feel the worms crawling in and out of your eye sockets, right? And it's another important consolation is that others will remember you, right? Yes, this exactly. Is, this is like when Keanu Reeves, you know, the messiah of this modernism you're describing, uh, was asked well, what happens when you die. He said, this is famous, like on a talk show or something. He said something like, the people that loved you will miss you. <laughs> and well, he's right. He's right. But that doesn't apply to extinction. That's precisely the part of it that's withdrawn with extinction. Yes. No one remembers you. There is a way that I could take that comment and take it somewhere else, but I'm not ready to do that yet. Right. But just to finish this thought, to basically provide you with excellent and upgraded ideas of everything except death, that was a bargain that that pinnacle moment of the modern tried to strike. We'll give you all of this stuff, this level of technological achievement and physical material comfort, prosperity, et cetera, et cetera. But when you die, we got nothing. 
there's nothing in this worldview to comfort you except what we, the two things that we just said. Yeah. And we are also going to shame you if you ever express despair in the face of that. If you ever say, well, that's not enough. Be like, well, what's the matter? Are you baby? You can't <laughs> handle it? Huh? Little baby wants pacifier. You want religion? You want your God? <laughs> Right? That's the Penn and Teller sort of thing. Yeah. I remember Penn and Teller, they always say, sh well, one of them always says shit like that, and the other never says anything. But, <laughs> right. you know but we know what he's thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if the whole time he's sitting there thinking? Yeah, yeah he's, doing uh, the, he's doing the Jesus prayer <laughs> constantly. <laughs> and and uh, the thing is that, no, we're not, we're not able to live that way. Or we are, actually, and have been for decades. But the payment is due. And the payment is that when you are facing some real shit, environmental crisis, et cetera, you have no tools for understanding what it means to just sit there and really process mm -hmm. what extinction means. And also, and this is another one of those tragic reversals or ironic slash tragic reversals, Anthropos becomes the most contemptible of gods. Yeah. He is pulled down and trampled and pissed on. The system only ever worked when we could believe in the nobility, despite everything, the nobility of the human animal yeah. and what human beings are capable of creating. And that is something that also seems to have been completely washed away. This is Meredith Michael. You might know me as the Weird Studies production assistant. And I'm Gabe Lubell, a fellow explorer of mysterious realms. And together, we're the hosts of Cosmophonia. A new podcast that just launched this month about music in outer space. We've both spent years studying the relationships between music and space. And it turns out there's an awful lot to talk about. So we thought it would be a great idea for a podcast. And now it exists. So join us every four weeks on the occasion of the full moon, when we'll discuss a range of topics such as... Pieces of music about outer space. Ideas relating to the commingling of music and space. Pop albums about space. Classical pieces about outer space. Film music. And a whole range of other things. In fact, if you like the space and music connections that Phil and JF are making in this episode, you might like Cosmophonia. Find us wherever you stream weird studies. Or at Cosmophonia.com. Okay, so Marxism, of course, affirms a kind of nobility of the human. The problem is that that nobility is ascribed to it and can only be ascribed to it by the human. You're in a, a vicious circle. We're only as noble as we're willing to say we're noble. And then considering the fact that we very seldom act nobly, historically speaking, it becomes harder and harder to affirm our nobility in the face of our savagery. Yeah. Dialectical materialism has part of its kind of algorithm, a kind of ascendance of the human, right? That's the idea is that the human becomes yeah. the agent of cosmic equality. I mean, in some of the cosmicist, or I shouldn't say cosmicist, but more speculative Marxists, it's the whole cosmos that's redeemed by human labor. 
through dialectical materialism, but the problem is dialectical materialism has a shadow, another dialectic, a downward spiral inverted pyramid dialectic, which is the inevitable depreciation of human statements as materialism gains ground. So the more materialism becomes true, the more the dialectical materialism kind of affirms itself as truth, the less what humans think matters. That's in science. The noble human intellect will look at nature and see it for what it is, but what the intellect sees is that the human is merely just an instantiation of animal life with no transcendent horizon, whose every thought is merely just a function of chemical reactions in its brain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's like... Whose purpose is only to generate little bits of content. Exactly. (laughs) Or like bits of of processing for the system of technique. Yeah, exactly. Of which we are simply wheels and cogs. Therefore, it's the very affirmation of nobility on the part of Anthropus that guarantees the negation of all nobility in the relativization of values that is an inherent part of an imminent frame inquiry into the nature of material existence. There's just no way out. So, so of course, those monuments end up gathering dust and lichen in the mountains. And maybe, you know, if they're lucky, getting some graffiti spray-painted onto them. Right. And that's the inevitable logic of the real dialectic at work in secular utopian thought. That's brilliant. So one thing, and I think I'm just going to leave this as a challenge. Maybe we'll continue talking about it, but I do want to talk about the spomenics and the brutalism. Yeah, I'd love to get more. Or, more to the point, I would like you to talk about brutalism because I know that this is something that's been very much on your mind in recent days. But before leaving this point, I want to read the very end of Stapleton's novel, which one or two sentences or phrases from it were lifted into the film, but the whole passage is worth reading. So we get to the end and the narrator's voice becomes increasingly laden with sadness and grief as the narrator sees this glorious civilization of the 18th species of human beings collapsing as radiation makes people fall apart physically and mentally Mm. as these highly civilized beings revert to earlier stages of savagery. And the 18th species produces one last great genius, one last sort of Jesus or Socrates type figure. And the narrator of this book hands over the last page of it to this last great genius of the species and writes, let his words, not mine, close the story. The first two sentences are in the film. Great are the stars, and man is of no account to them. But man is a fair spirit, whom a star conceived and a star kills. He is greater than those bright, blind companies. For though in them there is incalculable potentiality, in him there is achievement, small but actual. Too soon, seemingly, he comes to his end. But when he is done, he will not be nothing, not as though he had never been, for he is eternally a beauty. Man was winged, hopefully. 
he had in him to go further than this short flight now ending. He proposed even that he should become the flower of all things, and that he should learn to be the all-knowing, the all-admiring. Instead, he is to be destroyed. He is only a fledgling caught in a brush fire. He is very small, very simple, very little capable of insight. His knowledge of the great orb of things is but a fledgling's knowledge. His admiration is a nestling's admiration for the things kindly to his own small nature. He delights only in food and the food announcing call. The music of the spheres passes over him, through him, and is not heard. Yet it has used him, and now it uses his destruction. Great and terrible and very beautiful is the whole. And for man the best is that the whole should use him. But does it really use him? Is the beauty of the whole really enhanced by our agony? And is the whole really beautiful? And what is beauty? Throughout all his existence, man has been striving to hear the music of the spheres, and has seemed to himself once and again to catch some phrase of it, or even a hint of the whole form of it. Yet he can never be sure that he has truly heard it, nor even that there is any such perfect music at all to be heard. Inevitably so, for if it exists, it is not for him in his littleness. But one thing is certain. Man himself, at the very least, is music, a brave theme that makes music also of its vast accompaniment, its matrix of storms and stars. Man himself, in his degree, is eternally a beauty in the eternal form of things. It is very good to have been man. And so we may go forward together with laughter in our hearts and peace, thankful for the past and for our own courage, for we shall make, after all, a fair conclusion to this brief music that is man. I'm surprised that I hadn't heard of this novel before watching this movie. That is such a powerful, powerful conclusion. And strangely, you've served me, the per it's a perfect serve for where I was hoping to go, which is the redemptive power of beauty as a quality of the world in itself that humans are privileged to apprehend somehow. And also to participate in. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, I know that he's probably been canceled today because he was a very proud Russian nationalist. Nevertheless, he had a powerful vision of art. And in that speech, he quoted Dostoevsky saying, beauty will save the world. Dostoevsky, despite his deep and abiding Christian faith, was very much aware that the God image was dead in humans and that it wouldn't be by clinging onto some antiquated notion of the divine that we would save ourselves. Somehow, God had to become imminent in the world. And the quality that he associated with this divinity was beauty. The means by which we access that redemptive quality that may save us is art. 
because art is the means by which we access the beautiful in itself. This goes back to our recent episode on on art, where we were discussing Oscar Wilde's famous preface to the picture of Dorian Gray. This is so important because what's that line? Uh, he he writes, um, "Man is present in the eternal form of things." Is that it? Yeah, he says, um, "Yeah, he is eternally a beauty in the eternal form of things." It reminds me of Numenius. I think it was Numenius, uh, Neoplatonic philosopher of the late of late antiquity, who wrote some. I think he was the first to say it. I think Plotinus also said it. Alone with the alone, right? If beauty inheres in singularity, in the unrepeatable, then we can see how beauty is always a kind of expression of aloneness. But if the human itself is a beauty, in the beauty of the eternal form of things then humanity finds its redemption in being alone with the alone, in being a beauty that is of and with the beauty of the cosmos. Yes. And um, this is something I felt very much watching this film. So, so one thing about this film that's very interesting, but before I go there, did you want to comment on what you read? Because I kind of... Just one thing that I don't need any like response to. I find the questions asked we're talking about the whole here, right? And in the text, it, the W of whole is capitalized. Great and terrible and very beautiful is the whole. And for yeah. man, the best is that the whole should use him. That more or less is what you have said. Yeah. And then in the next paragraph, I love the note of doubt in case we thought that this was getting too much like a inspirational sermon, like a motivational talk, but does it really use him? Is the beauty of the whole really enhanced by our agony? And is the whole really beautiful? And what is beauty? Those five questions, okay? Mm -hmm. When I talk about how the modern has left us with no resistance, no tools to tackle the problem, no inner resistance or immunity, no, no, uh, no strength against the existential sickness that has afflicted all of us. It is exactly in that it pretends to answer those questions and answer them in the most dismal possible way. Does it really use him? No, there is no whole. There's just some shit that happens and then you die. Mm. Is the beauty of the whole really enhanced by our agony? There is no whole and our agony means nothing. Yeah. And is the whole really beautiful? Well, beauty is a construct and blah, blah, blah. And what is beauty? Beauty is just what we say it is, man. That's, is the pitiful half-handful of half-baked, third-hand shibboleths that we vaguely remember from our sophomore year of college. Right. And that is the sword and buckler with which we go to meet our fate, our cosmic fate. Fuck that shit. We need stronger medicine than that. Yes. Exactly. We need something better than that. But can we simply just revert to old ways old doctrines yeah exactly no i don't Uh, well i mean we we can try i mean but that but that shit hasn't worked either has it it's like being sick okay so i was just really super fucking sick and uh, that's why my voice sounds funny you know how when you're you're really sick and you've got a fever you like your body aches and you're lying in bed and you can't get out from under the covers because you're going to instantly freeze into a block of ice because you've got a fever you like you roll over and you feel a little bit better for 
a few minutes and then you just start aching in a different way. Mm-hmm. You just sort of keep repositioning and shifting and rolling around in the bed trying to find some way of being comfortable, but you can't find it. All of the little neo this and neo that return to this and return to that are just like a sick man tossing and turning in bed. Yeah. There's got to be something better and stronger and more vital than that. If we are going to draw on the old doctrines, they're going to have to be adapted to the gnosis of the modern, the gnosis that Hiroshima uh, represents, that the splitting of the atom represents, which um, we can get into that some other time. But I wanted to talk about the role of art in that, because art really does become a kind of sacral activity in the wake of the death of the God image, right? And this is not something that's easily kind of denied or argued against. It's quite obvious if you just look at the last 120 years, 150 years, look at where all those questions have been dealt with. Look at where all these existential problems have been explored and expressed and affirmed, and you will see that it was in art, primarily. There's a passage in Deleuze and Guattari's What is Philosophy that I have translated myself because I don't like the English translation. It tries to port Deleuze's style into English and then ends up just kind of making, just being very difficult to interpret. So I made my own translation. So it's not a great translation, but hopefully it'll be clearer. Okay. The reason I did this was because, well, now it makes so much sense to read it in light of what you just said, what you just read. But you have to watch this film. You have to see how this film is called Last and First Men, but there aren't any humans in it. Yeah. So it's a film about humans with no humans in it. Mm-hmm. And this reminded me of Cezanne's great quip. Cezanne said, when he was describing his landscape paintings, man absent, but entirely present in the landscape. Hmm. And this is what Deleuze is commenting on in this passage. I'm just going to read it. So the first thing, one thing you need to know is that for Deleuze, art involves the creation of what he calls percepts and affects. So we don't need to get into what that means. All you have to think of is the images that are in art, the images that are in music, the images, the forms that appear in art, forms in Suzanne Langer's term, right? Because we just talked about that in the art episode we did. So when I say percept and affect, you can think of forms in the sense that we explored in our episode about art power. So. Deleuze writes, the percept is the landscape before humanity. So the image we see in art is the landscape we see, let's say in a landscape painting or read about in a novel, is the landscape before the arrival of humans. I'll start again. The percept is the landscape before humanity, in the absence of humanity. But how can we say this about all these artworks? since the landscapes they contain always depend on the supposed perceptions of the characters, or, through these, on the perceptions and memories of the author. How could humanity be absent from, or come after, a man-made city, or a mirror reflecting the image of an old woman, even if the old woman isn't looking at her reflection? This is Cezanne's often-commented-upon enigma, man absent but entirely present in the landscape. Characters can exist, and the author can create them, only because they do not perceive 
but have united with the landscape and are themselves part of the compound of sensation that the landscape composes. Surely Ahab has perceptions of the sea, but he only has those perceptions because he has entered into a relation with Moby Dick which makes him become a whale, and which forms a composition that does not require a perceiving subject, the ocean. Mrs. Dalloway perceives the city, but only because she has penetrated it, like, quote, a knife through everything, in order to become imperceptible. Affects are precisely these non-human becomings of humanity, just as percepts, including the percept of the city, are the non-human landscapes of nature. Cezanne says, no minute that goes by can be preserved unless we become that minute. We are not in the world, we are with the world. We become it by contemplating it. Everything is vision and becoming. We become the universe, and we do it by becoming an animal, becoming a plant, becoming a molecule, becoming zero. So that's my translation of a passage from What is Philosophy? Just trying to be as clear as possible, but an idea that's really difficult to grok. But once you grok it, it's obvious. Art is man or humanity looking at the non-human and finding itself in the non-human. It's very close to what you're reading there in the passage you read, right? Which is that humanity and its expressions, and its search, and its yearnings, and its aspiration is telling us something, showing us something about the universe with or without humanity. I go back to this wonderful viral video that uh, was going making the rounds several years ago. It was a picture of an empty shopping mall with Toto's song, Africa, playing in the empty shopping mall, kind of echoing down the halls. And oh. people, there was a wonderful New Yorker essay on this viral video. I forget the author. But I talked about that in an essay I wrote on extinction for Canadian Notes and Queries. Nobody could really explain why this video went viral. It's literally just a shitty old 1980s shopping mall with this song playing, echoing down. For, for no you know, one. For no one. To me, that captures exactly what the passage I read and what you read is all about mm -hmm. is that the melancholy the our agony is itself part of the real it is yep. already out there it is already it is the agony of the cosmos itself our hope is the hope of the cosmos itself there is nothing that we humans have that will disappear once our physical organisms are gone the affects that we represent and the percepts that we represent are themselves the redeeming beauty of the cosmos as such. We are the song of the cosmos. And in a way, whether that song lasts a minute or 200 billion years or whatever is secondary because it's in the composition of the cosmos as a whole that the song matters. And it's there that meaning is expressed. And I think that that's one way of reconnecting with those fundamental mysteries that you said that even like you can talk about the whole and the whole uses us. And that sounds, that quickly becomes just kind of doctrine or dogma, unless you recognize that this idea of the whole itself is an instance of human expression, which never dissolves or banishes or solves what we've been calling radical mystery, which is the fundamental truth. That is the transcendence, not radical extinction, radical mystery, which qualifies and conditions 
all of our ideas about extinction. And I think that that's what Keanu Reeves was trying to say. <laughs> Let's send it there. And now we're after the music bed and we are going to talk about those motherfucking spomenics. I oh, seriously, right, I right, want right. to hear you talk about brutalism. Okay. So very briefly, the story of the spomenics, what happens after World War II, Marshal Tito was faced with a somewhat difficult balancing act. On the one hand, he was hostile to Stalin and needed to maintain Good enough relations, I guess, that they didn't send the tanks in, but like at the same time asserting a certain independence from Moscow. So that was one political reality Tito was dealing with. And another was the fact that this is, you know, the Balkans. You have a whole bunch of different ethnic, linguistic, religious groups living side by side and barely coexisting. And we all know what happened after the collapse of what was formerly Yugoslavia into his civil war. Mm -hmm. The thing is that Tito recognized that that was a huge challenge, was maintaining some kind of unity among these rather disunified peoples. And for that, he needed to create imagery. He needed to create something bigger for people to be a part of. And so it was a myth of the war. When I say myth, I don't mean in the sense of falsehood, but in the sense of creating a certain kind of unifying narrative of anti-fascist resistance. Mm -hmm. So the idea of suffering and dying together, shoulder to shoulder, fighting the fascists, that became a very important public myth of post-war Yugoslavia. So that was what Tito wanted to make a center of a civic vision, a common Yugoslav identity based around shared suffering during World War II. Right. Hence, all of these spomenics are war monuments to the victims of fascism, and they were not supposed to be like typical battle monuments. In distancing himself from Soviet Union, Tito also distanced himself from Stalin's favorite socialist realist aesthetics where you have, you know, square jawed workers with their eyes fixed on the horizon, you know, that kind of shit. And so the spomenics are abstract. Um, right. There are no human figures, no figures of anything recognizable. They're monuments that are supposed to embody 
general forms of feeling. And you can find them. They're now falling into ruin because after the fall of Yugoslavia, people felt this kind of pan-Yugoslav identity as a vicious lie mm. because, you know, there were secret prisons and so on. There's a lot of political violence that was used to maintain this appearance of social order. And with the collapse of the regime, there was a total collapse of the legitimacy of that idea, of that attempted creation of a new synthetic Yugoslav identity. This is my understanding from reading. Those of our listeners who are actually from that part of the world, please correct me if I'm wrong about any of these things. Mm -hmm. So the point is, these are extraordinarily interesting objects. They are relics of a kind of high modernism that really reached a zenith point in the 50s and 60s in Europe because there's this sort of sense of year zero modernism, which I think I may have talked about on the show previously. The idea is that we have made it through the fire of this war that almost destroyed everything. And so now what we need to do is rebuild culture from the ground up, from new first principles. You know, this is an idea that we approached in the Glass B game, the idea of a year zero modernism where from the ashes of a broken Europe, we will build a glass and steel new civilization that owes nothing to tradition and is based purely on its own imminent logic. Right? Yes. That is an ideal of high modernism that one found not only in Europe, but also in the United States, yeah. uh, which pursued its own kind of official state-sanctioned modernism for somewhat different reasons, as a way of thumbing the eye of the Soviet Union, that never, which, of course, never got on board with this kind of modernist internationalism. But also, it's the same idea that lay behind the formation of the United Nations, mm -hmm. that lay behind the liberal dream of a world government. The Spomenics are monuments to that modernism, and that modernism has died a violent death. Mm -hmm. In former Yugoslavia, of course, it was revealed to be always a rather uh, thin hope when all the tribal furies that Tito had tried to control broke out with renewed ferocity mm -hmm. in the Balkan War. Mm -hmm. And with that, of course, the Spomenics falling into ruin, sometimes vandalized or simply forgotten about. There's an, a Spomenic database that makes fascinating. I spent hours reading this as I've been sick in bed, which is one reason I'm going on at such length about this. But, uh, a number of the Spomenics, including a number of them shown in this film, they advise you not to visit because they're mined. They're riddled with landmines from the Balkan War that still wow. haven't been removed. And so these are monuments you might find in overgrown places where nobody goes. There might be in the most blasted and remote and inaccessible to human beings regions of the Balkans. Which is what makes them so fascinating. Right? Exactly. Because they are in themselves, in a weird way, non-human. They don't really belong to the human world. And in a sense, they are the ultimate expression of the modernism you're describing, right? Of the, this year zero modernism, I like that phrase, because of their sheer and utter uselessness. They're just their baffling nature. What are these? What are these for? 
you know, I can imagine passing by one of these things with a child and it's like, how do I tell you what this thing is without reciting the history of the last several decades? Because they are of time. You can really kind of explain them by describing their genesis as you just did. And yet the result, the net result, what you get in the form is something that renders history almost kind of inexplicable and mysterious and strange. And this is, I think, at the very, very heart of brutalism. So you said glass and steel. It ended up that the preferred material for this new world was concrete. And concrete's very strange. It's liquid rock, right? It's liquid stone. It has a kind of alchemical power. It's weird. And what what it allowed architects to do and sculptors to do is to envision forms that that no one could build before, right? Concrete is a very malleable and very um, versatile material. You can do all kinds of stuff with it that you couldn't have done before. And so the architects saw in this substance, in this medium, the potential to create a world. And the world they created looks like the worlds that science fiction authors were creating. So in a sense, brutalism is a form of science fiction. Yes. And it it very much belongs to these humans who in who have to deal with life in the ruins of civilization, right? Because in a sense, the world, the civilization was destroyed in World Wars One and Two. You know, there's that great passage that opens D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover. Ours is essentially a tragic age, so we refuse it to take it tragically. The cataclysm has happened. We are among the ruins. We start to build up new little habitats to have new little hopes. It is rather hard work. There is no smooth road into the future. But we go around or scramble over the obstacles. We've got to live no matter how many skies have fallen. And this is something that uh, a kind of affect you'll feel in like Camus' writings of that time, right? Or some of the existentialists. The thing is that the cataclysm has happened. Now we must build something new. And, and I think brutalism represents a response to that challenge of the most, I think, heroic kind. It, it really was an attempt to create a new way of living, to recreate humanity in the image of the non-human. In the image of something yes. that was a humanity that had transcended itself and had become something different. And these monuments in the former Yugoslavia are, I think, probably the best example of that and the kind of like proof of concept because they embody this yearning in us to surpass ourselves, to transcend ourselves. And ultimately, they also represent our failure to have done so. So again, we're back at that antinomy or that tension that you were describing earlier of having to recover something of that utopianism, of the hope it represents, but also dealing with the fact that the project fails. Didn't just fail, fails as a matter of fact, as described in the novel and in the film with all these versions of humanity failing again and again through some kind of cataclysm. So it's like we're in Beckett's resolve, failed, fail again, fail better. And so just, again, we're back at this tragic irony of an expression of a kind of universalism, a vision of a universal humanity, of a brotherhood of man, right? That was the phrase. 
that we need and yet has already failed us. Is that what you see in those monuments? Or like one of the things you see in them? Or am I... Yeah. 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 How to put this? When we talk about the death of God, not you and me, but like we as a people, we err because we're still thinking of a big dude with a beard sitting on a purple throne. The God that's died is Anthropos. We are the God that died. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>